Good morning to everybody, or depending on what part of the world you're in, it may be super early or it may be later in the day. We're doing a new episode on facts regarding the eyewitness testimonies of the Gospels. Particularly today, we're going to focus on a man named Papias, who knew some of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. One of the things that we want to do here at Explore Christianity is evaluate each claim. And one of the things that I've noticed, particularly when I was finishing my PhD, is how many people have abandoned the traditional position that the disciples came together collectively or as individuals and wrote accounts about Jesus's life. Now, uh, in that, the traditional names have been given to our four Gospels. There are many Gospels that are out there. In fact, much of my doctoral work was on the Gnostic texts, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Mary, particularly Mary Magdalene. If you, you study it very carefully, it's clear it's Mary Magdalene. Looking at these different avenues, these different names, the Gospel of Peter. I've done my own translation of the Gospel of Peter. When you talk about these different elements of the Gospels, people saw the validity in having a Gospel named after an eyewitness. It is important that even the Gnostics knew when they were doing forgeries to place the name of an eyewitness on the account to give it credibility. So that has been the position for years, is that the Gospels were written by eyewitness counts. In fact, the early churches have given large attestation to the fact that the writers of the four Gospels are exactly the names that have been attributed to them in our, in our text today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, that has been abandoned in modern scholarship, uh, not only in the secular world or even in the atheistic world, but it has also been abandoned in the world of seminaries and Bible colleges. Now, one of the things that I want to do is take a different approach, uh, because I, I actually do believe that the Gospels are written based on eyewitness testimonies, but I want to come at it from a different position than just, well, I just believe it because that makes sense, or I want it to be that way. We, we don't do apologetic work that way. We actually investigate, we explore these scenarios, and we examine the evidence. And if these texts were written by eyewitnesses, people who actually saw Jesus heal and heard Jesus say and recorded the eyewitness testimony that they have, well, then in that case, we have to examine these gospels from an internal perspective, like, all right, so what is the intrinsic uh, view? How do we establish this is truly something that somebody was there who saw Jesus do this or heard Jesus say this? How can we evaluate that they were actually there? There should be indicators. If the writers are who they say they are, uh, or people say that they are, there should be some level of external evidence that works together with it. But before we get into the internal evidence, which we will do for all the Gospels, today's episode is going to be particularly about a man by the name of Papias of Heriopolis. Now, he's an important figure, and he's often neglected. Uh, in fact, uh, I think it was probably about, I think, halfway through my PhD work, I was required to take some courses from Dr. Bart Ehrman, uh, who believes the Gospels were first century, but not necessarily eyewitness testimony, although he would probably say certain portions would be accurate. Um, but looking into his series that I had to do for class, the very first episode I remember taking 
from Dr. Ehrman was on Papias. And I was like, well, that's interesting that he started there. And he's a great location to start when investigating this issue. In fact, um, when you look at books, and I have his copy right here by Dr. Richard Bauckham, the wonderful Anglican who has produced a massive book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's huge. And it's filled with uh, incredible, incredible investigations on the subjects that we're talking about. In fact, we're going to allude to his work quite a bit. But in there, he starts with Papias's testimony. So when we look at scholarship, it is wise for us to examine the earliest speakers on the matter. And here in Hierapolis, uh, he was a bishop in one of the apostolic churches, and he knew some of the eyewitnesses. Uh, now, just to give you a little bit of uh, background of where Hariopolis may be, if you're you're listening and you're not looking at any ancient maps of the first century, uh, it's in the regions of Laodicea and Colossae, and that is very close to the very regions that Paul had written letters to, or had Colossae write, uh, or or to take the letter that he wrote to them and distribute it to Laodicea and read it out loud to their churches. It is not far from that very region. You have Hariopolis. Now, he wrote a five-volume work called The Exposition of the Sayings of the Lord. Now, we don't have that, unfortunately. Most of that has been lost to history. Uh, we did not, at this point, find any circulated copies uh, that were near that time period and beyond. It's unfortunate. Now, I would love to see something in archaeological discoveries, um, manuscripts that have been discovered from his five volumes. Uh, they'd be incredible. Uh, we do have fragments of it in the citations of guys like Eusebius. Eusebius has given us multiple statements that he has made and claims that he has made. In fact, <laughs> there's times that Eusebius actually disagrees with him about things. For example, he disagrees with him about how uh, we should examine in the book of Revelation the thousand-year millennium. Uh, Papias believed it was literal, um, and and Eusebius thought that was a joke. <laughs> he thought that was ridiculous. He, he said that was an allegory. So you do have some things that are criticized about him, and, and that should be stated up front as well because people have debated the credibility of Heriop of uh, of uh, Papias of Heriopolis, and and their reason for dealing with the credibility is on the focal point of the fact that he is criticized by Eusebius. But remember, Eusebius is not criticizing his history. Eusebius is criticizing his interpretation of, of theology and texts. So when we talk about, well, he's unreliable, because that's been stated, he's unreliable. He's not unreliable to Eusebius. He was reliable enough to report what needed to be reported. In fact, I believe there are certain portions in the history of the church where Eusebius chooses not to give um, Papias any credibility and give him any uh, platform, if you would, to make a point. So he gives a quote, and it's like, man, I want to know what the rest of what he had to say there, because it's like he was starting something, but he didn't get to finish. And I think the reason for that is Eusebius wasn't letting him finish. is because Eusebius did not agree with his assessment. So it could be that Eusebius actually reported what was reliable in his mind to report. So when we're looking at the man, the man Papias, the most of his info that we have that he gave 
to us through, thankfully, Eusebius protecting some of his work. He gives credit to a man named Aristion, a man that he calls John the Elder, and the four daughters of Philip that we see in the book of Acts. Now, this is important to note. We have to remember that though there were 12 apostles, when we look at Luke's gospel, for example, he lets us know that there were actually more followers than that that followed Jesus. Depending on which Greek manuscripts you follow and agree with, there were either 70 or 72 uh, who went out and Jesus sent them two by two. Uh, it is believed that Papias had contact with these two particularly that were with Jesus during his ministry, known as Aristion and John the Elder. And they were a part of that 70 or 72, if you would. Now, there is much dispute, and there is good reason to dispute, whether John the Elder is John the Apostle. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I, I do want you to keep in mind he at least, at least had two of the eyewitnesses of Jesus around him and investing in him and talking with him. But it's possible he had three if there are two Johns. Now, with that, there's also the four daughters of Philip, which means he would have received a large amount of information from them alone, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. Let me read a few of the quotes that he has stated in his work that has been recorded to us in the Ecclesiastes, uh, ecclesiastical approach of history in the church by Eusebius. He says, I shall not hesitate also to put down for you along with my interpretations whatsoever things I have at any time learned carefully, carefully from the elders and carefully remembered, guaranteeing their truth. So it, this is in the premise, if you would, of his work. He's stating right off from the get-go, I've learned from the elders. He's talking about the eyewitnesses who were with Jesus. And he said, I've carefully remembered what they've said to me. And he said, I am standing behind this as credible. I'm guaranteeing their truth, not his, their truth, that what they're saying is true. For I did not, like the multitude, take pleasure in those that speak much but in those that teach the truth, not in those that relate strange commandments, but in those that deliver the commandments given by the Lord to faith and springing from the truth itself. Now, here's what he is pulling back. He said, look, the, the fame of Jesus that's kind of spread in all these stories and, and crazy, you know, romanticized versions of them. I don't want to hear about those these strange commandments. He said, I want to know what Jesus actually said. I don't want a romanticized story. I don't want something that paints Jesus up. I'm going to tell you what I was told by those who actually heard him, whether you like it or you don't. I'm going to give you the truth and I'm going to stand behind their truth. And that's a good approach to take. If you're going through this from a skeptical position, you should like a guy like Eusebius already from the beginning because he is not jumping into this thing from the perspective that you're going to like everything he has to say, but he's going to tell you what actually happened. He's going to a report that was truly given by eyewitnesses, not by fame or some made-up story or a romanticized version of the story. He's going to shoot straight with you and give you the truth. He says, if then anyone came who had been a follower of the elders, I questioned him in regard to the words of the elders. So somebody comes along and says, well, you know, this is what the apostles taught me. 
In fact, Paul warned about this thing in 2 Corinthians. He said that there were people who were coming saying they're apostles. And he said that they are false apostles. And he said, you shouldn't marvel that there's going to be false apostles because Satan has transformed himself into an angel of light. So naturally, if somebody said, hey, I've learned from the apostles or the apostles taught me, he had a method in place. He had a strategy in place to critique or to question their validity. And the way you would do that is compare what they're saying to what he learned from them himself. And this is what it says. What Andrew or what Peter said, or what was said by Philip or Thomas or James or John or by Matthew or by any of the other disciples of the Lord in what things Aristion, here it is, and John the elder, the disciples of the Lord say, so those are his two main highlighted guys. You have John the Elder and Aristion. Now notice he has John listed and John the Elder separated from that list. This is where the dispute goes for the fact that there may be two Johns. And I actually think there were. I think John the Apostle is not John the Elder in his referencing, although I believe he knew both. But his two main go-to sources. Now, at this point, keep in mind, Peter would have been dead. I mean... When you look at a guy like Papias, he was probably born around 60 AD, died around 130, estimated. Now, Peter died in the mid-60s. He, he was martyred. So he would have not heard Peter. Um, but he knows what Peter said because he's been reported by those who knew Peter. Uh, Aristion, John the Elder, and he apparently had heard John the Apostle, which we'll talk about in a second. But here you see that he has a category, and it's odd, actually, that the order of apostles that appear in his lection, his, his section, uh, giving his lecture here, is the same order they appear in the Gospel of John, which would indicate he was familiar with the Gospel of John. But he gives direct precedence to two, particularly, Aristion and John the Elder. Now, John the Elder uh, would have been perhaps somebody who is close to Jesus as well. And actually, if you read Richard Bauckham, he makes the argument for this. I don't necessarily follow uh, Bauckham's full conclusion, but I'm sympathetic to his approach. But he states this, for I did not think that it was, that was to be gotten from books would profit me as much. And notice that he did not say that the writings did not profit him. He didn't say that. That's been a misunderstanding that's been attributed to him. He said, as much as what came from the living and abiding voices. So you have zoseis, phonase, kai, menoseis in Greek. The living and abiding voices, those that are still alive. So they're the, the, the eyewitnesses who are still alive reporting what happened, which would probably be Aristion and John the Elder that he's referring to on this. So he says, look, I, I, I don't mind books. I don't mind reading. In fact, he talks about two of the written accounts of the apostles in a minute. But he, he doesn't mind reading. But he would rather hear the stories from the actual people who were still alive in his day who were there with Jesus. And why not? I mean, listen... Um, I'm the same way. If I have a book to read about somebody 
and I have the opportunity to talk to somebody who actually knew that person. For I'll give you a perfect example of my world. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. I love J.R.R. Tolkien, my favorite writer outside of scripture. And, you know, there's guys like Peter Kreeft who wrote books on the philosophy of Tolkien. Um, but if I had an opportunity to talk with somebody who knew Tolkien himself over reading a book about him, I'm a, I'm absolutely going to talk to those people. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to ask a lot of explanations about things. Did he ever explain why he used this type of literature? Did he ever explain why he decided to write at this time period? I would ask all the questions I could think of to somebody who knew him. So naturally, Papias relied on the eyewitness testimony about the apostles and Jesus, and he enjoyed that more than reading accounts that were being published. Now, what Papias did demonstrate to us is that he did have what I call and what we're going to call a golden chain of custody. His connection to Aristion and John the Elder, who were the disciples of Jesus, is the main starting point for all of this. Now, potentially, John the Apostle, in addition to John the Elder, if they are separate individuals. Now, notice what Irenaeus says here about Papias. He said, Papias was an ancient man who is a hearer of John. Now, keep in mind, Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp, who is a disciple of John. So he's he's not the next generation, but the generation after John. He did not know John personally, but he knew Polycarp, who was trained, developed, and commissioned, and left as a, a bishop in Smyrna. So Polycarp is a very important man because he has a lot of the testimony of John preserved in his understanding. Now, Irenaeus learned from Polycarp, tell stories about John and Ephesus and things like that. And he states that Papias was an ancient man. One, so it would appear by the time Irenaeus is saying this, Papias is dead, which fits the timeline we have for him. Around 130, he died. And Irenaeus says that he's an ancient man who was a hearer of John. He heard John the apostle and he was a friend of Polycarp. So not only did he know John the Apostle, he knew the disciple of John the Apostle, Polycarp. He has great connections. Papias is a good source. Now, again, it is absolutely unfortunate at this point in history that we do not have the five volumes that he wrote. But what we do have of him is sufficient. Because he tells us a lot in what little we have. He says he was an ancient man who was a hero of John, a friend of Polycarp. In the fourth of his books, for five books were composed by him. So again, we have this continuation that you now have Eusebius, you now have Irenaeus, who recognize this man, recognize him as knowing the apostles, and recognize him as creating a five-volume book on the sayings of Jesus. Now, again, I do think that there is, just let me pause here so I can pick up where I, I stated earlier. I do believe that there are two Johns. I do think that John the Elder, John the Apostle are separate. And I would even go so far as say Jerome entertained this idea too. Jerome indicates that it is possible that second and third John were written by John the Elder, not John the Apostle. And that first John Revelation and John's Gospel were written by the Apostle. The more and more I, I look into these two Johns, I'm tending to agree with the final conclusion that we see from Jerome. It is very possible that the that that this is exactly what took place. That the John the apostle wrote 1 John and he wrote 
Revelation and he wrote John's Gospel, but not second and third John. Actually, another eyewitness did John the Elder, who had greatly called himself in those texts the Elder. Now, this is something to be noted because the books that were disputed in the New Testament were very few, but second and third John were disputed as to whether they belonged to John the Apostle. And that could be, and I'm not saying it is the reason, it could be they were disputed on the basis of the fact that they could not be easily traced to John the Apostle the same way the writing of the Apocalypse, 1 John, and his gospel were attributed to him. Uh, or, as some make the argument, it's because they're smaller literature and it's a shorter letter. And that is possible as well. But we don't dispute books like really Philemon that much whether or not they were attributed to, to, to Paul. Now, a skeptic and an atheist would dispute most of them as Pauline, except for very few, maybe seven. But when it comes to Philemon, most conservative scholars in canonicity do not dispute the small letter of Philemon belonging to Paul. So I don't know if that's fully the reason. I think it can, contributes to it. Brevity does cause problem because you have less information, less location, less distinction. That is understandable. But these letters were received by the churches and some of them were never disputed. It could be they were trying to trace in certain regions which John it was. They knew it was apostolic and they knew it came from eyewitness, but they did not know exactly which one. That could be the rise of that point. And I think that's where Jerome was entertaining that concept when he talked about the two writings of John's. Uh, so I, I, I tend to lean that way myself because either way, they're written by eyewitnesses who are authorized by Jesus. So it really doesn't bother me which one it is. I believe they're all scripture. But his connection with Aristion and John, or John's plural, he not only had access to what Jesus said because he wrote five volumes on it, but he also had access apparently to what Andrew and Peter and Philip and Thomas and James and Matthew said when you compare his teachings. He was a bishop in an apostolic church. This is important too. As I stated earlier in the program, he was left in a place where apostles started the church, which means there's also eyewitnesses still alive. Maybe they weren't eyewitnesses of Jesus, but they were eyewitnesses and converts of the apostles themselves. And they were in that apostolic church. And it's clear that some of the apostles were still living. When he was there, this means he was appointed to this position through apostolic succession, just as Polycarp was left in Smyrna, just as those who followed him, like Clement of Rome, uh, who wrote uh, First Clement, who were commissioned and trained by Paul and Peter in Rome. So he had these credentials. So we're looking at his chain of custody. Like, is his information reliable? Well, he's connected to two eyewitnesses minimum, maybe three. He heard John the Apostle himself, according to the testimony of Irenaeus. He was a friend of Polycarp who knew John. So he has a good secondary connection. He has primary and secondary connections. He had access to not only what Jesus said, enough to write five volumes on it, but he also had access to what other the Apostle said who had also already been passed on and died. He was a bishop in an apostolic church, which means he had apostolic letters. He had the original writings, if not secondary writings, passed on and copied from the apostles themselves in the churches that he was a bishop in. 
He had connection to the other apostolic churches in the region, such as Laodicea, Colossae, etc. So these are important. But he also had connections to Philip and his four daughters. Now, this is incredible to think about. This would give him information not only about Jesus and these, these other apostles, but about Paul and Luke. This allowed him to gain information about justice. There's a statement he makes about justice, um, who was also an eyewitness. If we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 23, we see that justice was one of those that they were casting lots for, whether or not he should replace Judas Iscariot. So he tells stories about justice, uh, but justice was up for potential 12th apostle. But it didn't work out. It landed at the feet of Matthias. Matthias ended up being the replacement that they chose. But, but between Matthias and justice, they were both with Jesus. In fact, that was the qualifier that Peter and others had stated. We need to find somebody to replace this office. Somebody who was with us all along, who saw and heard Jesus. Basically, this is what Peter's saying. If we're going to have a 12th apostle, he needs to be somebody who is an eyewitness. So justice was an eyewitness. And here... He has stories about justice. So again, he has information from multiple eyewitnesses. And then he has information from Philip and Peter's daughter, and his daughters, excuse me, about Peter, about Paul, about Luke. All of these, all of this information is massive. He is so close to the eyewitnesses, both in body and in letter and in secondary friendships, that he was able to compile five volumes about Jesus' life. That's incredible. So he has information about these people. In fact, it's reported by Eusebius that he says this, that Philip, who dwelt at Heriopolis with his daughters, had been already stated. But it must be noted here that Papias, their contemporary, Eusebius states, okay, so he is their contemporary. He was there with Philip. He was alive with his daughters at Heriopolis. And it says this. Noted here that Papias, their contemporary, says that he heard a wonderful tale from the daughters of Philip. For he relates that in his time, one rose from the dead. And he tells another wonderful story of Justice, who we just talked about, surnamed Barsabbas that he drank deadly poison and yet, by the grace of the Lord, suffered no harm, which kind of goes into that whole long ending of Mark. Um, perhaps that story came from the same source that um, Papias is referring to. Justice was an eyewitness, and he's telling a story that he learned from the daughters of Philip about how he drank poison and did not die. But let's think about the daughters of Philip. In Acts 21, 8 through 9, it says this. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, being Paul and Luke, Luke including himself into this. Where we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, these four daughters and Philip housed for a few days, Paul and Luke. The same daughters who sat at a dinner table with Paul and Luke sat at a dinner table with Papias. Think about that. They told stories of justice. 
How many other stories do they tell? So he's a contemporary with Philip, the daughters of Philip. He sat down with them. He had stories told to him by them. He is full of information. So as we move forward in this in this section of our of our series, looking at Papias's testimony first, and then we go into Mark and Matthew and Luke and John as we examine these gospels, we will be relying on Papias's statements about particularly Mark and Matthew. And the reason for that is because if we're going to find credibility to these documents, if we want to find authenticity about the documents, if we want to find if they were based on eyewitness testimonies, we need to go to guys who actually were there with the people who wrote them or with the group that was a part of the people that wrote them. And so in review, Papias had a great, great opportunity. He was alive when there were still living and abiding voices in his day. They're Aristion, John, and probably John the Apostle. Either way, he heard John the Apostle, even if it was before his death. So he had access to the apostles, and he had access to those who were physically with Jesus in his ministry. He had access to one of the seven in Acts, Philip, and his four prophesying daughters, who told stories of other eyewitnesses such as Justice, he was a bishop in an apostolic church, which means he had people who were still alive in his leader under his leadership who were a part of those who heard the apostles themselves. And many may have even been a part of the times of Jesus's ministry. Doubtful, but more than likely of the apostles themselves. He had tradition. He had documents. He had information. He had multiple reports as a leader of one of the apostolic churches and the fact that he was alive during the days of some of the apostles, he was probably placed there by an apostle, which means he was in a position through apostolic succession. He had great testimony of the other apostles given to him by these other disciples about Philip, about Peter, about Thomas, about James, about Andrew. He had enough information from the apostles and their secondary sources to the point where he wrote five volumes. Therefore, I would begin anything that we do moving forward that what we have of Papias is accurate. And what we have of Papias is worthy of our time. It is worthy of our admiration to his willingness to give us the information that he had, and Eusebius quoting it for us, to examine the authenticity and the reliability and the original source behind the apostolic text that we have called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so moving forward and starting in the next few weeks, we're going to jump first into Mark because that is where Papias starts his statements. Papias begins with Mark. He begins with the tradition of Mark. And therefore, we're going to examine his words about it. And we're going to take serious what he says, but we're also going to corroborate his words. He's not the only one that spoke of these matters. He's not only the close disciple of the apostles that saw these things and heard these things and wrote of these things. We have multiple testimonies. Again, we talked about Polycarp. We talked about Irenaeus. First, Clement. How does he weigh in on some of this? He doesn't particularly say anything specific like, well, John wrote it, but he quotes these texts and only these texts as authoritative to give us the teachings and words of Jesus. So does Polycarp. 
What do the others say? What do guys down in Alexandria, Egypt say? Seeing how Mark went down there. Naturally, he would take his gospel with him. So what do they say down there? What does Clement of Alexandria say? What does Origen say? What do these church fathers who receive tradition say, going all the way to the time of Jerome? What does Tertullian, the lawyer, say? These are things that we are going to examine and must examine in order to identify people of interest. We're trying to investigate, are these gospels based on the eyewitness testimonies of those that were there? And if they were, we must do an investigation as a person of interest. And the only way to do that is bring forth witnesses. Does anybody validate this guy as being the writer of this text? Can we find somebody who speaks and is given public voice and recorded voice that they know of the man who wrote this text? That they have information, that they have witness, that they have evidence. The only way we can trace the particulars or the source line that started these texts is to go to the people who knew the guys themselves or knew people in that group that published them. And I don't know a better place to start than Papias. So moving forward, this is where we will start. I hope you stay tuned for these things, that you will spend time uh Looking at these episodes, we're going to do our best to keep them all under an hour. I want to keep them brief. not Maybe not as brief as today's episode, but close to. So that you can take time to process the information we're going to give. Because I think it is important that we have a defense of these texts. Moving forward, I'm telling you, I have examined this in the academic world. This is the new battlefield. The new battlefield is to defend the Gospels. They are under massive attack. The concept of textual criticism has been answered. Multiple sources have come forward answering the issues about, well, we don't have the original words because of, we have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. You know, the, the, the historical channel producing these weak, worthless videos about how the Bible has been translated so much that we've lost meaning is nonsense. Uh, it's been disproven. It's been, it's been debated. It's been debated to death, to be honest with you. Works that have come out by my friend Elijah Hickson, Dr. Hickson, and, and Dr. Gurry from Phoenix Seminary, uh, who had a combined effort to write a book of myths and mistakes of New Testament textual criticism. Uh, contributors like uh, Timothy Mitchell, Dr. John Mead of Phoenix Seminary, all of these guys coming together and publishing a book that shows these flaws and errors that are made when assuming quite a bit in textual criticism. They have cleared up a lot of this stuff. So when we're talking about the words, that's not the debate anymore because it's kind of been exhausted and answered a lot. But what's new is, well, it doesn't matter if those are the actual words and they can be reconstructed. That doesn't matter because we still don't know if Jesus said it because there's no way that these books were written by anybody who heard Jesus or saw Jesus do that. That's the new argument. That's the new skepticism that's coming. And so our goal here at Explore Christianity is to pull ourselves back to say, okay, the church and even the secular scholars have always held this tradition in relation to these books. Now in a new age, 
they're no longer authentic. Now they're no longer eyewitnesses. Now they're no longer who they say they were. Now they're no longer who traditions. So now we've got to go back and say, okay, let's not start with scholarship in today. Let's go back to the original sources that we have that survived antiquity. And we have quite a bit today, thank goodness. Let's pull out the documents we have. Let's pull out the fragments we have. Let's pull out the Greek manuscripts we have. Let's examine them. Let's translate them. Let's find out what Papias said. Let's find out what Irenaeus said. Let's find out what Origen said. Let's find out what Tertullian said. Let's find out what these guys are saying. They have the sources. They have the documents. Let's find out what Eusebius recorded for us that he published in his histories. Let's go back to the sources and find out what they said. And then after we get a, a person of interest, we find out who they corroborate in the evidence. And this is important that we corroborate the evidence because they're all telling the same story. They're all telling the same truths. They're all saying, this is how we got this gospel. This is how we got this gospel. This is who wrote this gospel. This is where and when it happened. We have all these ancient documents that do that for us. They're making a person of interest in giving a claim credibility to the writer and giving credibility to his work and where it came from. And if that is accurate, we will take their overarching, undeniable, undisputed person of interest or people of interest in this case, the four gospels. And we'll say, okay, if they're telling the truth, because they're all saying the same thing, and that's what you're going to find when we go through this, can it be proven internally? Can it be demonstrated intrinsically with the external claims? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to explore the external claims, find a person of interest. We're going to bring them in the courtroom. We're going to say, okay, this person claims this person did it. This person claims that person did it. And if they did, is there evidence within the text that reflect that person's character, personality, skill set, mindset, educational background? And if that's the case, we have a valid and viable reason to conclude individuals' names attached to those works. That's what we're going to do for the next few weeks to come, examining Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, then John's Gospel. Thank you for tuning in. I know it was very early. I did a special episode in the morning, which I know has smaller uh, viewership on the live stream, but that's okay. I have a busy week. I have to teach tonight at church, things like that. Uh, so I wanted to make sure to get a video in uh, that could be circulated throughout the day and that you could tune into. I will also be posting this on Spotify uh, and Apple and things like that when I post here soon on my podcast of facts to re, uh, re-engage some of those. I've done these works before, but I'm doing a new take on them with Explore Christianity. If you have any questions, always feel free to reach out. Uh, to leave comments on the YouTube channel itself. We'll have somebody answer, and occasionally I check in as well and would like to do the same. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Stay tuned for the other episodes as we look next at the Gospel of Mark.